Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're finishing up the second chapter this morning. So this, and then two more messages, and we will be done with our study of 2 Thessalonians. Here, though, we have the main, I think, the main burden of the whole, the whole letter uh, this morning. It's in this passage. So look with me at God's word in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Hear then the word of the Lord. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, We pray now that you would give us some of that eternal encouragement to break into this moment and this season of our lives this morning. Father, encourage our hearts. Give us encouragement. Give us good hope by your grace, by your kindness. And we pray, Father, that you would strengthen us in every good work and word. Strengthen us to, strengthen me to teach and preach now. Strengthen us to listen. And we pray, Lord, through this imperfect medium of Zoom and video teaching that your word, which is infinitely powerful, would still break through and change our hearts. Give us faith. Give us fresh encouragement. Rebuke us. Uplift us. Train us in righteousness. For those who are watching now, Lord, as we watch together on Zoom and for others who might watch this video later. May your word be clear and powerful and may Christ alone be exalted. We need your help for that now. And we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The prophet Samuel almost got out of there. King Saul was getting antsy. He had the enemy army, the Philistine army on the other side before him. And his army, Israel, was not ready to go into battle. King Saul was waiting for Samuel, and he had to wait seven days. And by the seventh day, Samuel was to come, make a sacrifice to God on the army's behalf, and seek the Lord's favor for King Saul and for the Israelites. Well, the seven days passed, and Samuel wasn't there. So Saul was starting to get worried. Well, he was worried for for several days now. And troops started to desert the army and leave. Saul couldn't wait anymore. He had to take action. So he called for the sacrifices. He made the burnt offering sacrifice. He did the fellowship offering, even though he knew that God commanded only priests to make that offering. And as soon as he was done, guess who walks in the door? The prophet Samuel. He comes in, what have you done? 
Why did you disobey the command of the Lord? He questions Saul. He rebukes Saul and tells him that he will no longer have a dynasty, but it will be given to another because of his foolishness and his disobedience. What happened to Saul? Saul's discouragement was mixed with the pressure of the moment, of the situation, and that pushed against Saul so much that Saul fell over. He couldn't stand against the pressure. He fell and he failed. He rejected God. Just like King Saul, there are subtle forces of, in our lives, busyness and evil that tries to knock us down, tries to discourage us and get us to let go of Jesus, to give up. Discouragement damages our devotion to Jesus. And in this discouragement, we're tempted to minimize the challenges we face. Our challenges are not that big of a deal. We underestimate our challenges. So when we underestimate or minimize our challenges because we're discouraged and we don't want further discouragement and disappointment, we move forward in our Christian lives with a weak motivation and no enthusiasm merely obeying Jesus or trying to obey Jesus out of duty. So we're either doing that and and trying to move along in our Christian lives or we make excuses for our disobedience. And either way, if we're stuck in our discouragement with no motivation or making excuses for our sins and our compromises, we are sitting ducks for the devil, for the delusion we talked about last week from 2 Thessalonians 1 1 through 12. And we're sitting ducks to the constant barrage of the world that discourages us from clinging to Christ. And so into this challenge and into this discouragement, Paul gives a command, really the main command and the main reason for him writing the book. It's in verse 15. Look at it with me. You see that there in verse 15? So then, brothers and sisters, what's the command? Stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught. Stand firm and hold to the apostolic tradition. The traditions you're taught by the apostles, the apostles' teaching. Here's Paul with his team, Silvanus and Timothy. And these three are bringing the apostolic tradition and discipling the people. And he's telling them to stand firm in that. Hold on to that. The tradition that they received. For them, the world around them influences them to let go of the gospel just like it does for us. The ways of the world seeks to loosen our grip. And invites us, just like it invited them, to ease up, to take it easy. Some of them are going to wrestle with idleness, as we're going to find out in a few weeks when we get to chapter 3. Others are being so swayed by the mystery of lawlessness, as we learned last week, that they don't even realize that they're deluded, that they've compromised, and they're actually letting go of Christ. They don't even know what's happening to them. They stop believing the truth. They actually realize, or we actually see from it, that they never really believe the truth. They never receive the love of the truth. Remember that? but they delighted in unrighteousness. That's what we learned last week. And that's the context of this church. That's the culture that they swim in. That's the culture that we swim in here in 2020 in Southeast Los Angeles. These people, this world that they're in and the world we're in, they don't know God. They don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And in the middle of this context, the call is to stand firm. And the the verb stand firm means to be firmly committed in your conviction or in your belief, to be steadfast, to be able to withstand the, the, the waves of pressure, the winds that blow and force you to give up ground. It's a commitment that you have to your master. The world today tells us to, make, to not take God so seriously. 
It's okay to have Jesus in your life. That's okay. Just make sure that you still get your fill of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride in one's possessions or in one's lifestyle. God is okay, but friends are better. Jesus is cool, but influence is cooler. The Holy Spirit is powerful, but money is also pretty powerful. Different ways of, you can still have Jesus. You can still do your Christian thing. You just don't have to be so sold out. You don't have to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. So the command here, well, standing from the, the command to hold on is to hold strongly onto it, to be committed, to remain closely united to what you're holding to. And what are they to hold on to? What are they to stand firmly in, according to verse 15? The traditions you were taught. The traditions. Hold on to the traditions. Stand firm in the apostolic tradition. What is tradition? Tradition is merely content or instruction that has been handed down. A way of, le- a way of thinking, a way of feeling, a way of living that is handed down from one person or one group to another person or group. This includes teachings, commands, narratives, story. So the tradition we've received and pass on is the story. This is, in some ways, you could call it a worldview. One, one theologian says that the worldview is shaped by the story, the, their story of the world, their story of their lives. And from the story, you get truths on how to live or tr- you get truths on what is universally true. And then from those truths, you get ethics and how you should live in light of those truths. And then from there... You get uh, from, from those ethics and from those truths and from that story, you start to live your life in light of that. And that's your culture and that's your lifestyle of worship because everyone has a culture and everyone worships. But that flows from your story, the truths from that story, and the ethics that flow from those truths. And that reinforces the story all over again. And that is a tradition. So everyone has tradition. Everyone stands firm in some tradition or they switch from one tradition to another. Everyone holds to some tradition. But didn't Jesus, and so Paul's telling us, stand firm, hold on to the tradition that we gave you. But isn't tradition condemned by Jesus? Isn't tradition a bad thing? Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verses 5 through 7 and then verse 13. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you, hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many other similar things. As Jesus rebuke to the the Pharisees and the scribes. Notice here, Jesus does not condemn tradition but he condemns traditionalism. What is traditionalism here? What did they do with their tradition? Why did he reject their tradition? Their tradition, which became traditionalism, is hypocritical worship that uses human commands and customs to nullify the word of God. And that happens whether you intentionally do it or unintentionally do it. So traditionalism occurs when you take the preferences and practices of of a people, you practice that over time, And then you do that with a presumptuous confidence that you're right. And when you presume that you're right, you fail to examine your foundations, your reasons. You fail to reread scripture humbly 
and carefully to see if what you're doing actually applies faithfully to the moment you're living in and the situation you're living in. In light of this danger of traditionalism, taking your preferences and practices and just doing that again over time, that happens in churches as well. And because Jesus rebukes um, the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, 14 and 22 for lukewarmness, I think that we can be in danger of traditionalism in our church just like any other church. The lukewarmness of Revelation 3 is when we um, think we're wealthy and we need nothing. We become rich, wealthy, and need nothing. When we don't realize that we are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And when you become self-reliant and presumptuous, you start to think that your way of doing faithful church or faithful Christian living or faithful parenting is the way, and you actually could nullify the word of God. So we have to be careful there. But Paul wants us to keep going back to the word of God and set up traditions and, and keep traditions and hold to them. So how does good tradition come? We're not talking about traditionalism. We're talking about tradition, the apostolic tradition given in the Bible, right? Where, how does this come? Look at verse 15 again. The traditions you were taught, how, were, how was it taught to them? Whether by what we said or what we wrote. So the tradition given to them was in their words spoken and their words written. It's not just in what was written, at least to them. Now, Paul wrote scripture, so... He has an apostolic authority that pastors and church members and congregations do not have. But still, discipleship was meant to be formed, tradition was meant to be handed down, not merely in written words, but in lives lived, in relationships, in conversations. The Great Commission is to go, therefore, and disciple all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything Christ commanded. So you're going to use the written word, but to teach that, you need to use your own personal relational communication. And so from the word spoken and the word written, you have a tradition, an apostolic tradition that is given to churches and to Christians. So I have a question for you, BBC. Are we a Bible-only people? Are we a Bible-only people? Yes or no? Say it out loud, wherever you are, when you're watching at home. Are, you, are we a Bible people, yes or no? And some of you know me by now. It's yes and no, right? Yes and no. The Bible alone, the Bible only, is our final authority. There is no other final authority. The Bible only, the Bible alone, is our final authority. What is written here in the text from the apostles and the prophets, what is written here is, the supreme, is, is supreme since there are no more apostles today who bring further revelation with that same level of authority. Okay, this is the final authority from the apostles, Jesus, and the prophets. Still, even though this is the final authority, we don't learn the Bible only by us reading the Bible. We have pastor theologians and member theologians teaching us the story, teaching us the truths that come from the story, teaching us, us ethics on how to live, not just by what they say, by what they do and how they live even together as a church family. And from these ethics come, flows how they live in the customs, their worship, their culture, and how they engage their neighborhood and the nations around them. So all of these things, the story, the truths, the ethics, the lifestyle, all of these things press on us and guide us deeper into the apostolic tradition, the drama of the Bible. The truths, ethics, culture, and worship is expressed in a church 
family that lives together and loves together and engages their neighbors and the nations together. We do the Bible a certain way in our church. Every church does the Bible in a certain way in their church. And we do it afresh moment by moment. And that is what we are to pass on. That's what we're to hold to and pass on faithful biblical living. Now, I just need to make a side comment here. This is not part of the main point of the sermon, but just because we can also give in a traditionalism, I want to just guard us against this danger, though it's not the main burden of this morning. Since we're both growing as individuals and as churches, right, we're growing. So since we are growing and situations change, we do the same Bible, the same scriptural, scriptural truth at a different stage of our development and a different stage that we're in moment by moment. It's somewhat different. Next Sunday is a little bit different than this Sunday. No two moments are exactly the same. And as you develop, as we develop, and as our situations change, we take the unchanging Bible and we do it as best we can while we make room to shift as both the church family and the situation develops. If we don't do that, so the two errors are, one error is traditionalism, which is not the burden of this text. And that would be, some of you know this from our church, it might be the, the refrain, we've always done it that way. That would be the way of saying the way we did it in 2013 or 2016 is the way it will always be done. That would be traditionalism. That's not the danger of this text, but that is a particular danger that we need to keep in mind. The other danger, which is the burden of this text, is that we let go of the tradition. We let go of the authority of the Bible and the practical outworking of the Bible in your life, in our ministry, in our loving our neighbors. That's the danger of this text because you have a world around you that is pressing in on you to crush you and to get you to let go of Jesus. So here's the main goal. The main goal of this passage is understand your apostolic support so that you stand firm in the apostolic tradition. Paul the apostle here is going to give us support. He's going to show the church here that he supports them. And this support for them is to, is to help them stand firm in the apostolic tradition, to hold on to the apostolic tradition. And that's the same call for us. And really it's the burden of the, of the book that we'd have more reasons and more expansion on how to do this command. But for this morning sermon in this section of scripture, understand your apostolic support so that you stand firm in the apostolic tradition. All right, so there are two supports in this passage, okay? Support one is in verses 13 and 14. And we got the main command in verse 15. We've already covered that. And then you got the support two in verses 16 and 17. Okay, so two supports, two apostolic supports. And I'm gonna phrase it not just as the apostles, but I'm gonna say the saints because it's not just the apostles, but even now the, the, the church and Christians after who are also doing what the apostles do. So here's support number one in verses 13 and 14. Well, let's look at verse 13. What are the apostles, Paul, and then his delegates, Silas or Silvanus and Timothy, what are they doing? But we ought to always what? Thank God for you. So here's the first support. The saints, thank God for you. Christians, thank God for you. The apostles, the apostolic team, they thank God for Christians, for you. We see this in a few ways. In verse 13, let's just think about that. We ought to always thank God for you. What are they thanking God for? For God's goodness. It's a happy response because they see God is good to them and good to, good to them, the apostles, and good to the church. And so they can't help but thank God for his goodness. And notice, we thank God for you. Who's the you here? Brothers and sisters loved by the Lord. 
They thank God because when they see their faces, when you see each other's faces, they say, God loves, God loves John. God loves Christine. God loves June. You look at someone's face and you're like, the God of the universe loves her, loves you. How can I not thank God for you when I think about the fact that the God of the universe loves you? And when I think about the whole church, 105 members of BBC, that God, I could look at the church as a church and say, God loves them. When you think about that, that overwhelms you, or at least sparks in you, thankfulness. God loves his people. You are dearly loved by God. And therefore, God's people ought to love you and ought to thank God for you. Brothers and sisters, feel God's love as it's described to Benjamin here in Deuteronomy 33, 12. What's said about Benjamin is true of us in Christ. He, I'll quote the verse. It says this. He said about Benjamin, the Lord's beloved rests securely on him. He shields him all day long. He rests on his shoulder. The one that the Lord loves rests securely on God. God shields you and you get to rest on God's shoulders because he loves you. There was a song that captures this wonder from the early 2000s, I think. At least I heard it growing up in my teens and 20s. It's a good song, and I, I, it does capture the mood of, of this love. I am your beloved, your creation. You could say your new creation. I am your beloved, your creation, and you love me as I am. You have called me chosen for your kingdom, unashamed to call me your own. I am your beloved. You are God's beloved. God loves you. And God loves the Christians around you. And so the Christians thank God for other Christians because God loves them. And so the ought here makes sense. We ought to thank God because God loves them. It's a moral obligation that fits the reality. And here's the word that strikes me really powerfully. It's the word always. We ought to thank God always for you. There's never a time where it is unfitting for you to thank God for another Christian. When you're mad at them, when you're rebuking them, when they seem stubborn and stuck in sin, where they're in stage three of church discipline and we're getting ready to excommunicate, there is never a time where, we, where it's not fitting to thank God for a Christian, someone we affirm publicly as a Christian. We always ought to thank God for them. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy are thanking God for the church in Thessalonica. Saints ought to always thank God for you. Now, why should the saints thank God for you? There's two reasons to thank God for you. There's two reasons why the saints thank God for you in the text. You guys see them in verse 13 and 14? Let's look at the first one. Why should we, why should saints thank God for you? Because from the beginning, what? What did God do? God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. So God chose you. They thank God. Saints thank God for you because God chose you. Now it says here, God chose you first, or God chose you from the beginning. Others say first fruits. I think beginning is the right reading, but they're both theologically accurate. You are the first fruits of the new creation to come, if that's the right translation or the right manuscript. But I think it is beginning. The point here is that God chose you before the foundation of the world, before he created Adam and Eve, before the fall, before he created angels. God chose you from the beginning. He set his love on you. So when Paul thinks of the Thessalonians, he's thinking of those that God, set, God chose to set his loving salvation on from all eternity. When you think of your fellow church members and other Christians you know as those whom God has chosen from all eternity, how can we not give thanks to God for them? 
It makes more sense why Paul said we ought to always give thanks for you. For you. Now, what, what's, the, what's the goal or what caused God to choose you? What, God, what caused God to choose you and not somebody else? I think about other family members of mine who've passed away, as far as we know, not in Christ. What caused God to choose me and not my other family members? The, the biblical answer is we don't know. We don't know what, God, what, caught, what caused God to choose us and not someone else. All we can say from the pattern of Scripture is God chose us because he chose us. He loved us because he chose to love us. That's in Deuteronomy 7. Peter Jung, our brother, is going to be preaching on that tonight. So come to listen to that as we think about Deuteronomy 7 tonight. But here's what we do know. We don't know why God chose us. We do know, what, we know, we know the wrong answer. God did not choose us because we're better. He didn't choose you because you're greater than other people. He didn't choose you because you're more worthy or you're more lovely than those he didn't choose. It was God's grace on you, God's grace on us. And what did God choose us for, according to verse 13? God has chosen you for salvation. God chose to save you, save you from your sins, save you from the consequences of sin, your condemnation, the judgment that we deserve. God chose to save you from yourself, from your sin, from your penalty, from your damnation, and ultimately, God chose to save you from God, from God's wrath. And he chose to do that from the very beginning. Now, how does God save in this verse? Paul gives us two ways that God has chosen you for salvation. Through what? Through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Now, God the Holy Spirit sanctified you. He sets you apart. Now, what does it mean that God sanctifies you or the Holy Spirit sanctifies you? It could mean that the Holy Spirit is transforming you in a process. So you become more and more like Jesus. You become more and more holy. You, be, you become more and more sanctified in the process as you grow. That is used in the Bible, and that's a true way of using it, but that's not the only way to understand the word sanctified. I actually think it means positionally sanctified. In other words, not that God make the Spirit um, goes through this process of making you more holy, but the Holy Spirit consecrates you. Once you were for sin and Satan and damned to hell, the Holy Spirit has taken you and set you apart from hell and sin and set you apart for Jesus, for righteousness, for joy, and for the new heavens and the new earth. He has set you apart. He has consecrated you for God's holy purpose. The Spirit is designating people. They were, there's no longer sin and condemnation for them. It's like my water bottle. This water bottle is not the only one at Bethany Baptist Church. There's at least four people that I can think of, and even more, um, some who've transferred out recently. I guess we're going to be voting on some. There's some in this room right now. There's many water bottles like this, right? But this one in particular is set apart to me, and I designated such by putting my own stickers on it, and I see stickers on the other ones here. And the reason for that is because I should be drinking from this, not these other people who have the similar, a similar water bottle. This is designated for me. It's holy. It's set apart for me. It's not in a process of becoming PJs. It's mine. It's for me, and it's not for these other people who have a similar water bottle. And in the same way, you were once set apart for sin and, and Satan, and now you are designated, consecrated for Jesus. He has marked you. The Holy Spirit has marked you as his. But there's another way that we are chosen for salvation. It's not only through sanctification by the Spirit. Look at verse 13. It's also through belief in the truth through faith in the truth god saved you by you trusting in the truth believing in jesus before you trusted in jesus you disobeyed the gospel second thessalonians 1 8 and you rejected love of the truth 
2 Thessalonians 2.10. Instead, we happily and enthusiastically believe the lie. Then, when we believe the truth, the apostolic testimony, when you heard the truth and you believed it, you repented from sin. You rejected the lawlessness of this world. You rejected your own selfishness and self-centeredness. And you received the love of the truth. You let go of sin and lawlessness. And you embraced Jesus Christ as your, as your Lord, Savior, and treasure. And when Paul looks at the Thessalonians, he is moved to gratitude because they trusted in the truth. When you look at a membership directory now for your prayer time, when you look around those gathered on Sunday or when you're looking even right now on Zoom, if you're watching this on Zoom live, and you see the names and faces of other people, realize that they trusted in Jesus. They believed the truth. They are set apart, set apart by the Holy Spirit and God chose them for this salvation. What a blessing. You walk around, you drive around. Not everyone you drive past has been chosen to believe the truth, but some have. And when you see them, you thank God for them. Paul thanks God for them. And the saints thank God for you as well. Paul thanks God for them not only because God chose them, but let's look at verse 14. He not only chose them for salvation. Verse 14 says, He called you to this salvation through our gospel. So God, he thanks God for you because God chose you. We thank God for you not only because God chose you, but because God called you to salvation. Tom Schreiner says, election took place before history began. That's the choosing. But calling occurs in history. And Paul thanks God for both. You were chosen before history. You were called in history. How did God call you to the salvation? How did God call them to the salvation? Look at verse 14. He called you to this through our gospel. And presumably not just through the gospel, but through the preaching of the gospel, through the gospelizing of the gospel, through him speaking and communicating the gospel. God called them to salvation. Now, when someone gospelizes, God calls them to salvation in what we call a general call. So not everyone gets saved when people hear the gospel, but that is God generally calling people who hear the gospel, come to Jesus, repent from your sins, trust in him. That's God generally calling all of humanity. But then there are some who hear that call and God effectively or effectually calls them. And so when I heard the gospel in 1989 in January, Others around me, we all heard the gospel and the general call. But in that moment, God called me out of death into life, out of darkness into light. He gave, he breathed life into me. He caused me to be born again. And then he saved me. And I believed the truth and repented from sin. Just like when Jesus called Lazarus to come out of the grave, when he was dead for four days, Lazarus, come forth. In a similar way, when you heard the gospel and you believed the truth, that was a general call to all the people around you, if there were others around you. And then if you trusted in Jesus, God effectively called you into life and into light and into love. He does that through the preaching of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, when you gospelize other people, a supernatural thing is happening, even if they don't get saved. God is calling them to himself, generally. And he's calling some of them specifically, effectually, to himself through our gospelizing. If you're not a Christian, I just want to let you know that God is calling you right now. He's about to call you right now as I share the gospel with you. This gospel that God saves people through is the one message that you must understand if you're going to understand who Jesus is and what Christianity is about. And this is the gospel that God created you. He created me. He created us in his image to reflect him, to enjoy him, and to know him. 
But we didn't want to know and enjoy God. We wanted to use God to know and enjoy and reflect other things. We've rejected God and rebelled against God and disobeyed God, and that's what the Bible calls sin. And the penalty for sin is death, damnation, eternal death in hell forever. Well, that's bad news. But the good news is that God sent his son Jesus into the world. Christ lived a life of perfect holiness and righteousness. He died on the cross for sinners like you and me, and he rose from the dead on the third day. So that if you would repent from your sin, let go of your sin, let go of your own goodness, let go go of your own self-righteousness, and trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord, as your master, as your savior, as your treasure, then God will save you. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So God is calling you, I'm calling on you, to call on the name of the Lord Jesus to save you. And he will save you even now. God is calling you generally, and I pray that even now that God is calling some of you effectively to trust in Jesus who died for sinners and rose from the dead. Now, let's go back to this passage here. Why does God call his people to salvation? Look at verse 14. He called you to the salvation through the gospel. Why? So that you might what? So that you might what? This is strange, but I want you to think about this. So that you might what? Obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus. Is that what keeps you up at night? Is that what you think about? I can't wait to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus. I mean, I know he has glory, but I can't wait for me to obtain that. We don't, we don't look for, we probably don't use this language, and I love that the Bible gives us different language. I want to encourage you this week to embrace this phrase. Lord, I want to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus. This is why God saved you. This is why God called you so that you you would obtain the glory of Christ. That's the goal of salvation. The goal of salvation is not merely so that you would worship Jesus as you do your noble duty. The goal of salvation is not that you would avoid hell. The The goal of salvation is not so you can sit on a cloud and play a harp forever. The goal of salvation is not only that you would glorify Jesus. The goal of salvation includes the fact that not only would you glorify Jesus, but that you would be glorified in Jesus, if you remember from 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 12. That's the reason why we walk where they call, so that Christ will be glorified in us and we in him. The goal of salvation is not for Christ's glory alone, but for his glory shared with his bride forever. And that the bride obtains this glory, receives it, and lives in full union and full expression of that union forever and ever and ever. In other words, the glory of Jesus is eternal life. It's a glorified and incorruptible body. It's a peaceful and perfectly loving community that loves one another and loves Jesus as his bride in perfect holiness without spot or wrinkle or blemish. The glory of Jesus is a communion and a communing with God together in increasing sweetness forever and ever and ever. And all of this while enjoying and reigning with Jesus on a new earth as kings and queens, sitting on his throne with him. This is the glory of the Lord Jesus. And this is why God called you to salvation. So that you would obtain that glory, that goal. That's why we were made and remade as new creations in Christ. One of the most immature, sinful, hypocritical, and divisive churches in the apostolic era was the church at Corinth. 
You guys are familiar? Are you familiar with the problems at the church in Corinth? They divided over their favorite leaders. They thought that they were more mature than other churches, and so they were arrogant and condescending. They sinfully tolerated public gross immorality, sexual immorality. They were suing other members in the court. They're taking fellow members to court to sue them. They belittled the gift of sex in marriage. They, they disregarded the weaker brothers as they ate food offered to idols. They used their freedom to belittle fellow members rather than to serve them. They didn't regard fellow members during the Lord's Supper. They actually ate the Lord's Supper before other members were able to get there, particularly those who were poorer. They, they distorted biblical manhood and womanhood in the church. They boasted about some spiritual gifts and disparaged other spiritual gifts. All they cared about was the spiritual gifts and not loving one another through the spiritual gifts, which is the whole point of spiritual gifts, is love. They even believed that the resurrection, that our obtaining of glory wasn't going to happen and that there was no resurrection. And Paul is saying, if you don't believe that, then Jesus didn't rise. And if Jesus didn't rise, then there's no gospel. They even believed that. So this church was jacked up. And yet Paul says when he writes to them, before naming all of these things, in 1 Corinthians 1, I always thank my God for you. <laughs> that church, he looks at those saints and says, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. Apostolic support, apostolic affirmation is not based on your actions primarily, but on God's gracious actions toward his people. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged that the apostolic community, the saints, the church, thanks God for you. I want you to think about yourself. Saints, thank God for you. The apostolic community thanks God for you. Receive this apostolic support and use it to stand firm and hold to the apostolic tradition. And BBC, as a church family, stand firm as a church as you receive affirmation and support from one another and from other churches. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are affirming each other's salvation. Take that tonight and look around and thank God and receive the fact that you are being affirmed. You are being thanked. God is, or we are thanking God for you as we take the Lord's Supper and as we look and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Children, thank you for listening this long. We thank God for you. And we thank God that you're growing up in meaningful relationships in the local church. This is God's goodness to you. So you should receive God's goodness that we love you and that this community loves you. But we want you to receive God's greatest goodness that you would repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for yourselves. Not because mommy trusts in Jesus, not because daddy wants you to trust in Jesus, but because you trust in Jesus, because Jesus calls you through the gospel. So trust in Jesus who died for your sins and rose from the dead. A second application, and this is, this is secondary, is that we ought to thank God for others as well. The main point is that you should receive the fact that people thank God for you. But... It just also goes that you're part of the apostolic community, so you should thank God for fellow members. So understand your apostolic support so that you stand firm in the apostolic tradition. That's the main goal. The first support is the saints thank God for you. Here's a second support to help you stand firm in the apostolic tradition. The saints call on God to bless you. The saints call on God to bless you. Verses 16 and 17. So first, the saints thank God for you. What an encouragement that is. Secondly, the saints call on God 
to bless you. Now look at verses, verse 16. Here's the blessing. Who's the one who blesses us though? May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our Father, may these two bless you. The Lord Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father, God our Father. May this God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may this God bless you. Now, it's, it's not only, um, we're not only given the identity of the Lord Jesus, who is Lord and God and Messiah, and God the Father, and he's our Father because we're adopted in Christ. Um, it, does, it, def, it defines who God is or describes who God is in the rest of verse 16. This God, this Father, loved us. And we already talked about God's love, but he loved us. And what has he given us? He's given us eternal encouragement by, and good hope by grace. He's already given that. That's past tense. When you became a Christian, when God called you to salvation and called you through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth, when God called you to the salvation and chose you for the salvation, actually when he called you to it, in the calling and in your initial salvation, God gave you eternal encouragement. And he also gave you good hope by grace. This is the God who blesses us. And what blessings does he give us? Verse 17 gives two specific blessings that he gives us. You guys see them there? What are they? Say them out loud. What are the two blessings God gives his people? Encouragement and strength, right? Encouragement and strength. So encourage your hearts and strengthen. So these two blessings. First, God encourages your hearts. God encourages the discouraged. Let me back up and say that one more time. God loves to encourage the discouraged. Your discouragement, I mean, are you discouraged in heart? Do you ever get discouraged in your life? I have good news for you. Your discouragement is not a surprise to God. God knows his people need encouragement deep in their hearts, not just on the surface. You guys know when people try to encourage you, and we should keep trying even if it doesn't get deep enough. But God knows that we need encouragement deep in our hearts. And God loves to give us not just shallow encouragement on the surface, but encouragement that really dislodges that deep discouragement and pain. God loves to relieve us of that and and loosen that and weaken that in our lives. He loves to give it to us. He means for us to receive this encouragement in the midst of brokenness, sin, and discouragement. So here's a, a challenge for you, a call for you, brothers and sisters. Don't be discouraged by your discouragement. <laughs> Don't be discouraged by your discouragement. God intends to encourage you in your discouragement. In other words, your discouragement is part of God's design to draw you near to him. Be encouraged that God means to meet you in your discouragement with his encouragement so that you taste and see in your heart, that God is good. If you were never discouraged, you would never need encouragement. You would never be able to taste and see God's encouragement, right? You couldn't taste the goodness if you didn't need the goodness. You couldn't feel the encouragement if you were never discouraged. Don't be discouraged by your discouragement. Those are the opportunities that God has ordained to meet you, which is why I'm discouraged regularly and then encouraged regularly because God is good to us, right? God, God gives us his encouragement. That's the first blessing. And these saints are calling on, on, um, on God. Paul is calling on God to encourage them, the Thessalonians. But not, not only to encourage them, in verse 17, encourage your hearts and, verse 17, strengthen you in every good work and word. 
God doesn't only want Christians walking around with encouraged hearts. Your encouraged heart is to be the engine, but he means for the engine to move you forward, to move you to action, to move your mouth to say words, to not just think good thoughts, but speak good words. The way we actively stand firm and hold to the apostolic tradition is not merely by having encouraged hearts, but, ha but by having encouraged hearts and strength to fulfill every good work and word. You guys remember 2 Thessalonians 1.11, right? Go back there. The prayer of Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1.11. In view of this, we always pray for you. What's the prayer request? That our God may make you worthy of his calling, will make you worthy of his calling. And, here's the prayer request, by God's power, fulfill your every desire for good, to do good, and your work produced by faith. May God give you strength. May God fulfill your every desire to do good and your every work produced by faith. God is the one who fulfills our good desires. And from Philippians 2.13, even our desires are given by God, right? God works that into us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure, both to desire and to do for his good pleasure. So brothers and sisters, God strengthens you not only to have encouraged hearts and a good idea, but to strengthen you to say something that will build somebody up and change their life. You're saying, I could really change somebody's life today as I gospelize somebody? As I encourage one of the members tonight in our evening gathering? I could really change somebody's life? Yes! Yes! You can change their life. You might not see this huge drastic change, but when you speak encouragement and pray encouragement down on people, you change them. You change them for the good of, for God's glory, for their good and the good of their neighbors and the nations. In our words and deeds being accomplished in the power of our God, we, and when we do that, we are actually being supported to stand firm in the apostolic tradition. Okay, so that's the, that's the blessing. But I need to answer this final question before I apply it and we, we end. How can we be sure that God intends to actually bless us? So I'm thinking about you. How can you be sure that God actually intends to bless you? I mean, I remember as a kid growing up in church thinking, man, I wish I could be like the pastors because it feels like God really blesses them and God's really close to them. And why can't God be that close to me? Maybe I need to become a pastor. That's not why I became a pastor, by the way. But do you ever feel like that? Like you could see some Christians and you say, that guy just, or that, that sister, she just knows that God blesses her. She knows it and she feels it and she lives on it. And whereas I'm here and I don't feel like God blesses me, how can I know that God is really blessing me? How can you know? You can't, I mean, it's not, you're not supposed to know only by actually experiencing the blessing. Well, maybe after he blesses me, then I could know after the fact. Yeah, you could know that way, but I think God intends more than, than knowing before or knowing after the fact. Some might do a, God, show me a sign. Just show me a sign that you're blessing me. Like make, make my, my phone float in the air for five seconds. Just do something like that and, and then I'll know, then I'll know that you're blessing me. Have you ever wanted a sign from God? Have you ever prayed? I've done this before. Have you ever prayed for a sign from God? If God could just tangibly give you some signal, some proof, some evidence that you can actually look at and point and say, there, right there, there is proof, right there. Thank you, God. You've given me tangible proof. I could see it. I can point to it. You've given me tangible proof that you are blessing me to stand firm. Well, I have good news for you, brothers and sisters. God gives you a clear and present signal of his blessing. He did for the Thessalonians. What was their clear and, and pre, their clear and present signal of blessing? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were praying down a blessing on them. 
That's tangible. You can say, Paul, you can name them. Paul, Sylvanus, Timothy are, are asking God, calling on God to bless us. Remember the, the high priest Aaron? He would come and he had this decked out priestly garments, not like the, the normal priest ones, which are also different than, than the, the people, but he'd have a different colors and he'd have 12 stones on his chest representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he would go and bless the people of God as they'd gather in the tabernacle. They'd see the sacrifices. And then he would look at the people, not only him, his sons, they would look at the people, the priests, and they would say, the Lord bless you and protect you. May Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh look on you with favor and give you peace. And it wasn't only God, them calling down a blessing. You were there. You saw sacrifices. You could smell the burnt offering. You can see the tent. You can see the tabernacle. You can see the blood flowing. You can see the garments of the priest. You can see the 12 stones on his chest. You can see the other priests there lifting their hands and, and praying and calling down a blessing on the people of Israel. And you can see it. You can point to it and say, God must be blessing us. Here's a real, tangible, clear, present evidence that God is blessing us. Well, in this the people would know that God is blessing them. And today, at Bethany Baptist Church, you have the royal priesthood, the holy nation, pronouncing blessings over you. The members pronounce a blessing over you in song when we sing to one another on Sundays. We pronounce a blessing. We, we do a benediction when I end a service on Sunday nights. I pronounce a benediction of a blessing over you. I say, I usually do 2 Corinthians 13, 13. May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's not just routine and ritual. That is God, the triune God, blessing you with grace, love, and fellowship. That's tangible. And when we used to gather in this empty auditorium, how would we end our services? It wasn't with me merely pronouncing the blessing. Who would pronounce the blessing and benediction? We would all take our bulletins, right? What would we do? We would read the blessing to each other. Why? Because we are the holy priesthood, all the members. And so you have a tangible church body gathered together, the temple of God, the priests of God, the new covenant priests of God, the new covenant temple, gathered together. And you could point at them and say, look, God, you love me. You're blessing me. I don't need my phone to float in the air. I have the predestined, chosen, and called people of God gathered together pronouncing a blessing over me. The saints call on God to bless you. That is apostolic support. That is a gift. Personal, present, tangible, audible. You can see it. It's visual. God loves you. And he blesses you every week. Every week. You don't need to wait for a miraculous sign. You don't have to wait for the experience of blessing first. The very pronouncement of God's blessing is a blessing on your life. So brothers and sisters, gather with the church on Sundays. Come tonight to sing over one another in a hundred degree heat at six o'clock p.m. Take the Lord's Supper together and pronounce God's blessing, apostolic blessing, over one another. Experience the presence of Christ in a special way. We are the temple of God individually, but we are the temple of God corporately when we gather together. Let the weekly gathering be that 
recalibrating blessing in your life week after week after week after week. So brothers and sisters, understand your apostolic support so that you stand firm in the apostolic tradition. By God's grace, you have apostolic support. The saints thank God for you. And secondly, the saints call on Almighty God to bless you. Now, God is the one who ultimately supports you and holds you fast, right? It's not the saints ultimately. God is the one who ultimately supports you and holds you fast. But why does God patiently persevere in holding us up? Why does he hold us, why does he hold back, why does he, or why does he hold back from punishing us? Why does he keep blessing us when we keep sinning and deserving a curse? Why does he keep holding us? Why does he keep holding the church at Corinth with their terrible divisions and all the sins in their life? Why does he keep holding them up? Answer, because he let his son Jesus go. That's why he holds on to you. He let his son go to earth. He sent his son to earth to die for your sins, to become a man, truly God, truly man, to die for your sins. He made his son on the cross a curse for us so that we can be blessed, forgiven, and held onto by God forever and ever and ever. He stopped supporting Jesus, in a sense, on the cross so that he would never stop supporting you to stand firm and hold to the apostolic tradition. God gives us gospel grace in Christ. And notice the command here is not to go somewhere. You don't have to go anywhere because you've already arrived. Just stand there. God's not telling you to go grab something. You don't have to go and take anything because you already have it. Just hold on to it. It's already been given to you. You've already been put in that place. The prophet Samuel Going back to our story from the beginning, the prophet Samuel was just a little too late, right? Saul was waiting for seven days. He was getting antsy. He was getting discouraged. And Samuel was just a little too late. Or was he? Could it have been God's plan? Could it have been a test for Saul? That discouragement? Could God be testing you? in discouragement to uphold you with his support and give you encouragement keep loving and holding on to Jesus as the winds of culture and your personal selfishness blows on you to push you down to knock you over and to get you to let go of Jesus keep loving and holding on to Jesus when we gather and when we're scattered let's help each other stand firm to the end let's pray I'll give you a minute to pray on your own, and then I'll close in prayer.
Father in heaven, guard us from rushing on to the next thing. Still our hearts. Steady us on you. Help us not to move on so fast that we don't receive your encouragement. As we recall the fact that our members, our church family, thanks God for us. Christians thank God for us. And we praise you that you bless us, not only directly, but you give us tangible ways of knowing you're blessing us through your people gathered and scattered, calling down your blessing on us. Help us, by your grace, to stand firm and hold on to the apostolic tradition. In Jesus' name. Amen.